Well, good morning, everyone. I think we'll uh, we'll get started. A couple of minutes behind, but uh, I want to give you as much time as as I can. Uh, my name is Gavin Peacock. I'm a pastor uh, of a church, Calvary Grace Church in Calgary, Alberta, Western Canada, Rocky Mountains Territory. Um, and uh, I'm also the director of international outreach for CBMW. If you've heard of CBMW, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which was uh, started or spearheaded by uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem in the late 1980s. And so my particular role is um, to actually do conferences for them in countries abroad, the UK, China, Africa, um, and so on, because CBMW, obviously very America-centric. And uh, in a previous uh, life, a previous career, I was a professional soccer player uh, for 20 years in the UK. I've been a Christian since I was 18 years old, so all, all through my soccer career I was uh, a Christian athlete and never had a sense of call to full-time ministry, although I did speak evangelistically quite a lot. Um, but the Lord called me to ministry and uh, after I finished playing in around about 2006 and I was working uh, on a second career for the BBC, broadcasting, uh, soccer, sports analyst and co-commentator. Um, and then I began my theological studies and I gave up uh, what was considered the second dream career to to run away to the mountains in Canada to do my theological studies. I thought I'd go back to England afterwards, but uh, the Lord has kept us there for 15 years. It's coming up now. So I'm an elder in the church. I've been uh, an elder and pastor for, for the last 10 years. So it's my great pleasure to be here with you this morning and for this next couple of days uh, to talk about these uh, great and uh, weighty topics and and so prescient in our day and age. Uh, I'd just like to read a a text uh, from the scriptures from the book of Genesis and then I'll pray and then we'll begin. We all know the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then just the last few words of the first chapter, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, as we have heard your word and we come once more under your word, I pray that by your spirit you will illuminate your word and, uh, and our minds and hearts and warm us to it, that we might sit under it, that we might be changed by it, that we might uh, obey it and speak it. Uh, for Christ's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm talking this morning about biblical manhood and womanhood. It is an issue of divine design, and uh, we're going to go back to basics in Genesis 1 to 3. That's the overall title. Um, You know, there is the old story that if you put a frog into a pan of boiling water, the frog jumps out straight away because it immediately senses that the water is hot. But if you put that same frog into a pan of cold water and bring it slowly to the boil, uh, that frog will boil to death before he knows what's happening. And, you know, this issue that we're talking about of manhood and womanhood and marriage and sexuality uh, is an issue in our day and age. It's the waters that we swim in. It is a current issue. We live in a, a postmodern, feminist, secular, gender-neutralizing age where the denial of absolute truth and the feminist and LGBTQ agenda is holding sway in education, entertainment, uh, the media, uh, leads to an attack on biblical manhood and womanhood at its core. It's the cultural flavor of our day. So like the frog in the pan, people are boiling to death and they don't realize it's happening. They don't realize it's happening because these are just the waters they've swim in. It's the air that they've breathed for so long. It is a current issue, very current. The issue is also global because the reach of the agenda, the ideology, is spreading out. And with the use of social media now, it spreads so much more quickly. 
I was recently, well, a couple of years ago, spoke in a, a conference in Zambia. Now, in, in, in Africa, they've very much got a, a bit more of a cultural and traditional hold on manhood and womanhood and marriage, just maybe more from tradition and culture than even biblical conviction at times. Um, and yet I was speaking at this conference and I was saying, like, you're feeling the breezes of a tsunami that is coming. A tsunami is coming from the West and, it, and you're just feeling the breezes at the moment. But, but of course, all the, the young people there, they're all on social media. They're all getting the updates. They're all being indoctrinated by the ideology. You, you, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. And it does hit at the foundations of what it means to be human. Kick out Genesis 1 and 2 from the base of the building and the building will fall. We have cracks all the way up the building. People are seeing the cracks, but, but they don't know why or where it's coming from. So we need to think clearly on these issues. It's a current issue. It's a global issue. Issue is also personal. Everyone in here is going to be affected in some way by a distortion of sexuality. A family member who is homosexual or transgender, a father who was abusive, maybe absent from your life, a contentious wife, uh, your own struggles with lust, perhaps, uh, is one of the most personal issues of our day in the church and in society. Um, as, as pastors, uh, we are dealing with these issues now more than ever and increasingly so. Issues that we, you know, that 30 years ago just were very rare to be dealt with. Now it's just all the time. And I'm speaking to pastors as I travel. And it's remarkable, pastors being on the front line, how Satan wants to bring down the, the pastors and attack through the family. How many pastors' children are actually engaging with these identities and lifestyles and how much suffering there is in the lives of, of pastors and pastors' wives in these areas. Now, biblical wisdom is the ability to discern the times according to the fear of God. During a time of national turmoil, the nation of Israel was served by the men of Issachar. These are men, the scriptures tells us, according to First Chronicles 12, verse 32. These are men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So we're all, to some extent, the product of, of our culture. But what we need to do is understand the times in which we live so that we can know what we ought to do. And of course, the word of God is always under attack. It was that way from the beginning with the serpent in the garden. We just need to see what areas it's under attack most in and be willing to stand and defend those areas. As Elizabeth Rundle Charles said of Martin Luther, speaking about Martin Luther, you can fight on every battlefront, but if you're not fighting on the, on the front where you're being attacked most. You're actually avoiding fighting the war. Culture says that you can be what you want to be according to how you feel as long as it doesn't harm anyone. You can define yourself, the world, and God. And we live in a time where men are not men and women are not women, where the distinctions between the sexes have been so blurred that homosexuality is now a cultural norm, bisexuality is flaunted across the media, promiscuity is considered acceptable and transgenderism is the new kid on the block just look at any soap opera today and see if these are not the essential ingredients to make it successful and keep it on air because it must reflect what's going on in the culture now within professing christians many of you will be aware already there are two basic positions with respect to what the Bible teaches on manhood and womanhood. Both of these positions affirm the equality of value and dignity of men and women as they're created equal in the image of God. However, there are some differences and, and so we need a language to describe what we are talking about. So a couple of theological definitions for you. Complementarianism that's uh, spelt with an E, complement, not complement, with an I. Complement is, complement is, that's a great shirt you're wearing there. That's a compliment. <laughs> complement, like fit together, complementarianism. Both men and women have equal value before God, but he has assigned different and complementary roles to them within marriage and the church. In this view, husbands bear a unique authority and responsibility before God for leadership. A wife is called to help her husband in submission to his leadership and only biblically qualified men are to serve as elders within the church. I put biblically qualified men because not all men are qualified to serve as elders within the church. 
That's complementarianism, egalitarianism. Both men and women have equal value before God. So they're with the complementarians there, but there's a difference. They say he has not assigned different roles to them within marriage in the church. In this view, men and women share a joint authority and responsibility before God for leadership, just according to how good you are, competency. And men and women are both then qualified uh, if they're good enough to serve as elders within the church. So they flatten the distinctions there. Now, when you're playing a game of football, soccer to translate for you guys, but it really is football because you kick it with your foot as opposed to football when you, where you throw it most of the time. I don't get that. You kick it anyway. I won't argue. I'm on your turf. So when you play a game of football stroke soccer, when it starts to go wrong on the field, there's a saying that you need to go back to basics. You need to get to, back to doing what you were originally taught. Go to the game plan, how it is set out by the coach, uh, the manager, for, for you as a team and as an individual. And we need to go back to basics. We need to go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. We need to recover that confidence in Scripture. Remember also Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we need to have our minds constantly renewed according to the Word of God and not by the passing fashions of the age. So we've got to go back to basics to the scriptures and not to culture as our authority and sufficiency for describing manhood and womanhood. I say authority and sufficiency, the sufficiency of scriptures, because many people will say, oh, the scriptures are authoritative, they're, they're inerrant. Ah, oh, but they are they sufficient? Because the same people that say that they are authoritative and they're inerrant, they will go outside the Bible to define who they are and how they're to act. They're not sufficient, you see. But the scriptures are sufficient. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I'll, I'll speak a little bit uh, about marriage in, in this uh, seminar. Uh, but, but to the unmarried, to the unmarried men and women, uh, this is a time for you to prepare to be the husband and wife now. Uh, and as we're teaching this in our church, we need to actually be clear on this. Uh, if it's the sovereign will of God that he calls you to be unmarried for life, then the principles of manhood and womanhood are totally relevant for you. Uh, you don't become a biblical man or woman when you get married. Manhood and womanhood goes back to the created order in Genesis for all men and women. All of life. So I would hold to a broad complementarian position that in all of life, that the men should have a, a, a sense of protection uh, towards women. This does not mean that all women submit to all men or all men are heads and in authority over women. But because of the distinction, the created distinction of the sexes, there, sh there ought to be that sense of protection that a man would have towards a woman such that if the gun a gunman comes in that door in 30 seconds, I would expect the men in this room to be on him before the women. They're not going to be pushing the women out in front of them. <laughs> I, I often bring up the, uh, to, to piggyback on that, speaking at university campuses, and I say to the guys, you know, to, to, to men, like, you're walking back, it's late at night, and it's dark on the campus, and you're walking one of the young ladies back to the dorm, and, you know, the, a, a guy jumps out of a bush, and he's got a knife, and he thrusts it in your face, and he says, give me a watch, and I'll take your girl too. And at that moment, you know, like, she's a black belt in karate, yeah? You couldn't punch your way out of a wet paper bag. That's a phrase we use in England, you know, the wet paper bag is easy to put your fist through, you can't even put your fist through that. Okay. Um, you know, she hits the gym, you know, five times a week. You've not been to the gym in five years. <laughs> you know, at that point, are you going to push her out there and hide behind the bush and say, you take him out? And they, they snigger, they laugh because you, you, I say, no, you, you know, you're, you're no kind of man unless you, you know, you step out in, in front of her. And I said, then when you're on the ground, then she can take him out. <laughs> but you're no man unless you try. Because it's written on the DNA of, of your soul as a man. 
Um, and, and, and so for singles, for, for unmarried, you know, spiritual fathering and mothering in the church, brothers and sisters in the church. You know, First Timothy 5 Verses one and two, Paul speaks in, in, in gender distinctive language about the church. And so there's roles then to, to be played in, those, in the church for married and single people. Jesus, the most perfect man, was single. So it was uh, Paul. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians 7 affirms the unmarried state as honorable, if used for the Lord. Ungodly singleness is a blight on the church. That's another talk. But singleness used for the Glory of God is a wonderful thing. So marriage is a profound thing. The picture is Christ and the church, but marriage will not exist in heaven. Speaking of the resurrection, Jesus says in Mark 12, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be, be like the angels in heaven because the final destiny is the marriage of Christ the bridegroom to his bride, the church. Marriage on earth is a temporary institution which pictures that gospel truth. And when the heavenly reality comes, the earthly picture is needed no more. So we elevate marriage. We preach on marriage. We, 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 we glory in, in marriage, but we do not idolize marriage in the church. Okay, so that's just a word for, for the unmarried. But first, a, a question here. What makes manhood and womanhood a primary issue in our day? In other words, what is at stake? Here's a few things that are at stake. The first thing is that the issue is wrapped up in the authority of Scripture and the church's relationship to culture. In other words, do you allow culture to dictate the norm on issues of gender and sexuality, or do you rely on God's word as authoritative and, and sufficient? Where there's an eroding of the authority of God's word, even through poor interpretation or hermeneutics, there follows a departure from it and a descent towards liberalism. Where God's word is doubted as authoritative, then the truth about his character is called into question. When God creates man in his image, he creates them male and female. He's creating these equal but uh, different human beings who are to image forth something about him, the truth about who he is. That's what it means to glorify God. And when we don't fulfill our divinely designed roles according to God's word, then we begin to tell a lie about who he is. It's a, it's a God thing. Now, Mark Dever, many of you will know, senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., said several years ago now, several years ago, it is my best and most sober judgment that this position egalitarianism is effectively an undermining of a breach in the authority of Scripture. It seems to me that this issue of egalitarianism and complementarianism is increasingly acting as the watershed, distinguishing those who will accommodate Scripture to culture and those who will attempt to shape culture by Scripture. So here he thinks these Two positions and the difference is a, a litmus test, if you like, for evangelicals, which is going to indicate whether they give primary authority to scripture or to culture. The implication is that egalitarianism is ultimately an accommodation to the culture, though I would add a caveat that its proponents, many of its proponents, would certainly profess a very high allegiance uh, to the Bible. And so I do know brothers and sisters who would hold to an egalitarian position, who love the Lord, who are godly folk. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't want to sort of throw them under the bus, as it were. At the, at the same time, I do think they are wrong on the issue. I do think they are wrong on the issue. And I think it's an important thing to stand on today. Deva believes it's the watershed issue because he carries on and says that there might be no way that the authority of Scripture is being undermined more quickly or more thoroughly in our day than through the hermeneutics of egalitarian readings of the Bible. I mean, that was, I reckon that, I think that's about nearly 10 years ago. And see how quick this has moved in that last 10 years. I mean, it's been rapid, rapid onset. I agree with Deva and others that this issue, manhood, womanhood, marriage, sexuality, has become a dividing line in our day, almost between who is evangelical and who is not. So that's the first issue. That's the first issue. It relates to 
the authority of scripture and the church's relationship to culture. The issue also relates to marriage. You can't be gender neutral when you enter marriage. The way you understand manhood and womanhood will profoundly affect how you relate to your wife and and vice versa, how you make decisions, who takes primary responsibility to lead in protecting and providing in the home. When it's two o'clock in the morning and for the second time in the week you hear the glass breaking in the kitchen as that burglar makes a second attempt to rob you do you elbow your wife awake and say you go this time i went last time we got to be egalitarian about this it relates to marriage the issue also relates to parenting what does your parenting look like Uh, A key question, what is it to be a man and not a woman, or what is it to be a woman and not a man? You know, I'll say, I'm speaking at men's conferences, women's conferences, and I'll I'll pose the question. So what is it to be a man, man of God? Oh, to to, to be loving, to be peaceful, to be joyful. You know, they reel off fruits of the Spirit. And, And the women will do the same. I'll say, yeah, that's generic Christian. What is it to be a man and not a woman? or a woman and not a man. Tell me what the difference is. How do you answer or display the answer to that question uh, to your children when little Johnny tugs on your arm, little four or five-year-old and says, Daddy, Daddy, what's it mean to be like you and, 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 and not like mummy over there? Mummy looks different and, uh, and, and acts different. How do you teach and model those behaviours? How do your children behave towards members of the opposite sex? Uh, What skills do you teach boys and girls? Are there any differences at all? Do you wrestle with your daughter like you do with your son? My daughter did not want to be body slammed on the living room floor every night. My son loved it. He loved it. And uh, of course, I wrestled with both. Uh, Fathers, very important for daughters as well as sons. We used to play this game. Uh, It was the, we call it the Lion King game. And I'm dating myself here because this was when the first Lion King came out. We used to play this. So it was like 94 or whatever it is, 1994. So in the Lion King game, I was Mufasa, the king. And Ava, my daughter, loved to play Little Simba, the cub. And then Jake, my son, Loved to play the evil Uncle Scar. Loved that role. And, and so I'd crawl around on the floor with them and Ava would come next to me and then, then we'd curl up, pretend to be asleep. She'd curl up next to me, little Simba next to um, Mufasa. And this was Jake's cue because he'd be watching from the doorway and then in he would come and he'd sneak and he'd grab his sister's leg. He loved this bit. And he'd drag on her and try and drag her out of the room. And then at this point, I'd pounce on him and uh, I, I'm defending my daughter from the enemy. I'm teaching her that I will protect and provide for her as a man. Jake didn't get to play that particular role in that game. I wrestled with both of my children. When I wrestled with Jake, I wanted him to test his strength against me because he's going to be a protector in the future, a protector even of women. And I wanted Ava to feel my strength for her. Him test his strength against me. Ava, feel my strength for her, even as I'm wrestling with both. Now, it's a, maybe you think it's a silly little illustration, but the way that we play with our kids even demonstrates these these things uh, subconsciously. Are you training your boys and girls to be men and women, to be husbands and wives, I would say? When do you ask a 15-year-old boy uh, nowadays, uh, when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up or when you're older? When do you hear that 15-year-old boy say, want to go get me a wife and have some kids, make a family? They'll say, maybe I want to be a sportsman, I I want to be a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, But it's not even on their radar nowadays with, with teenage boys. Or a teenage girl asks the same question. And she, and she says, oh, I'd love to be married. I'd love to have children and, and, and have that privilege of bringing up the next generation of, uh, of Christians even. It's not on their radar. And yet it was on God's radar from creation. He made the man. He said, there's a job. Here's a wife. Have some children. Family. Extend it. What is it to be a man and not a woman? Woman and not a man. Big questions. Our society can't answer that with clarity at the moment. Kids will watch you and they will be influenced. The fact is, if you don't teach them, the culture will. 
If you don't teach them, the culture will. And it's getting even more so because of, I've already mentioned, the invasion of social media. So the issue influences parenting. The issue also relates to leadership in the household of God. I've already mentioned this, whether your church reserves the role of elder, who has that primary responsibility for the, for the management and teaching in the church for biblically qualified men alone, or whether it's open to men or women, stems from what you believe on issues of manhood and womanhood. The issue also relates to homosexuality as distinctions between masculinity and femininity are downplayed and gender is defined merely as a social construct, then some want to argue there's no basis in nature, no ethical basis for human relationships, exclusively male-female in the sexual realm. In other words, if gender is defined culturally and culture is relative and always moving and changing, why can't a society accept so-called gay marriage? Are biological differences alone enough to invalidate homosexual relationships? Nonetheless, it goes deeper even than the physical DNA, which is pointing to the DNA that's written on the soul of every man and woman by divine design. I'm going to mention a little bit more about homosexuality and the next point on transgenderism in my uh, message tomorrow, which will be expository from uh, Jude. And I'll be making some applications there. But the issue relates to transgenderism. It's always moving in that direction, the T on the end of it all, and then all these other letters, of course. But transgenderism is one step further away from biblical complementarity. You see, without the parameters of fixed binary sexes and then bodies that tell you something about that maleness and femaleness at the deeper level, and once you make gender a social construct, the body is not necessarily telling you anything true and fixed about your gender. And see, here we have that old Gnostic heresy, very much connected to the transgender ideology. Andrew Walker in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, says the concept that our gender can be different from our biological sex is a modern form of the old Gnostic idea. Gnosticism emphasizing that a person's self-awareness is different than and more important than their physical body. And so there's a tension between our true selves and the bodies we inhabit. So a man can identify as a woman, even if that man has male chromosomes and looks like a man. And so the, the man then can change the habitation to suit the desires. Gnosticism is a theological heresy, and it has reared its head again somewhat in the transgender movement. Now, a point uh, as just we close this particular section, uh, according to Wayne Grudem, who I, I was just at a conference down in uh, North Carolina, and I, and I actually met Dr. Grudem for the first time. Um, and the great work that he has done in this area uh, can't be underestimated. But he said in 2006, we would be foolish to ignore the trend set by a number of more liberal Protestant denominations, denominations from that from the 1950s to the 1970s approved the ordination of women using many of the same arguments that evan evangelical egalitarians are using today and those few prominent evangelicals who have endorsed homosexual conduct have already set a pattern of following evangelical feminist arguments his point the hermeneutical grid the way that they've used to interpret the scriptures that egalitarians have used, had, that grid has led to the ordination of women as pastors. And that grid has led to the aff affirmation of homosexuality within the visible church. And now would include moving on to the transgender agenda. So I think, friends, we need a robust complementarian understanding of the scriptures right out of Genesis 1 and 2 what we're doing today because when it goes deep and when you've got your foundations deep in these things it will protect you against the shift in the other direction so what's at stake the issue is wrapped up in the authority of scripture its relationship uh, church's relationship to culture it's related to marriage to parenting to leadership in the church, to homosexuality, and to transgenderism. But what is ultimately at stake is the glory of God. That's what's ultimately at stake. 
men and women display God's glory as those created in his image. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Isaiah 43, verse 6, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, what's the purpose? For my glory, whom I formed and made. In order to say something about himself, by his word, God creates the man and woman, male and female, equal and different, to think and act in such a way that we would reflect him. And being male and female is tied to his glory. To glorify God is to be like him and to represent him. The ultimate reason we exist. So how are we like God? How do we represent him? We're like God in that we're relational beings. God is a relational God. Always been that way triune father son and spirit we're intelligent beings god talks to man he relates to him intellectually through speech and expression of thoughts and ideas we're created with moral capacity god is morally good and we're created with a capacity as it were to discern what is good so relational intelligent moral that's how we're like god and how do we represent god how do we represent him well we just need to see back in genesis 1 26, we're to rule and subdue creation, representing God's good and wise rule. We're vice regents, as it were, on earth. And as we do this, and as we multiply in the creation commission, we're meant to mirror forth God's rule on the earth. And so you multiply images of God and then the whole earth is full of the knowledge of God. But we are created male and female, not just male, not just female, so there's equality and difference, unity and plurality. So recap here. We've laid out the current global and personal issue of manhood and womanhood. That's where we started in the introduction. Then we've identified what's at stake in the quest to hold to a biblical definition. And then we've shown what is ultimately at stake, and that is the glory of God in men and women created in his image. So in this final section... I want to go back now and look at seven evidences to show a male headship as God's creation design for his glory before the fall in Genesis. Creation design, which stands today. It is about God's design, not competency of males and females. It is about his design. So let's press on and let's dive in here. Number one, the naming of the human race. Genesis 1, 26, then God said... Let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over, ev over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, Adam in Hebrew, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them, plural. So God naming the human race man, not woman, using man then to define man and woman hints at a priority of man in defining the relationship between the two. In marriage then, traditionally a wife taking the name of the husband even. So that's the first thing, is the naming of the human race, a, a if you like, a whisper uh, towards male headship. Second, the order. Adam was created first, then Eve. You need to notice the creation sequence. In obviously Genesis 1, we have this big view of creation, and in Genesis 2, we zoom in into the particular creation of the man and the woman. Uh, verse 7 of Genesis 2, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's verse 7. And now I go down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So obviously, verse 7, it is, it is him and then it is her. How do you know that a, a man is called to lead? Adam was created first. Well, you say you're reading into the text. Well, that's not the way the Apostle Paul sees it in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, 1 Timothy 2.12, speaking of male leadership in the church, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What is the reason he gives? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Uh, Grant Castlebury is going to actually be 
preaching on this text. I think it's coming up at one o'clock. So he's, um, or maybe he's going to do that in his second uh, message, but he's going to be doing some expository stuff on this. But basically, Paul's argument for male leadership in the church is based on the created order. Adam wasn't the leader because he was more intelligent. And nor did Paul support male leadership in the church because of the culture in Ephesus or uh, because there were particular women in the church that were outspoken, but because the man was made first. He says that quite clearly in the text. He's given the moral teaching in order to pass it on to Eve. The difference is not qualitative, it is functional. It is never an issue of competency. It's always an issue of divine design. So that is the second evidence, is the order. The third is the purpose. Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not Adam as a helper for Eve. Genesis 2, 18, I love this passage of scripture. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. She is from the man and she is for the man. God takes the rib from his side and brings her to him. He needs a helper fit or suitable for him. She is one who is equal to him. She complements him. Adam is the pinnacle of creation. He is vice-regent to the king. His role is a helper fit for him, corresponding to him in the image of God, the same as him, equal in value and worth, but different. This is the point, you see, of, of, of why, as the author crafts this, that God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And then all the animals are paraded before Adam, the point he's trying to, one of the points he's trying to make is they are not fit for him. They are not created in the image of God the same as him. But, but she is. She is fit for him. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. There's equality. But she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, indicating some dependency upon the man for life. And yet, from that moment on, Every man will be dependent upon a woman for his life, even the God-man, Jesus. And so you see the beauty of God's design in its reciprocity, as well as the differences, as well as the equality. The realm of thought here is not God bringing a leader to him, but bringing him someone to lead, someone who will help him. The leadership, not qualitative, remember, but functional. It's not a case that she is less than him. Again, because that's the point of parading the, the animals. They're not his equals. But it's clear that she is to help him and follow his leadership, to come alongside him and assist him in the divine mission of displaying God's image and glory in the world. We can discern from this that her submission to his leadership is what we would call a unity submission, a unity submission. She's his helper for the sake of a unified front in the mission to be fruitful and multiply images of God. But we also see in this picture, in this uh, purpose, as it were, these roles in marriage detail a picture of Christ and the church. I think we'll be talking about this a little bit in the, uh, the, the flow of the conference. Uh, in Ephesians 5, 31, 32, Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24, marriage at creation. And he says that it refers to Christ and the church. But it is not marriage in general that's in view. It's marriage with Christ-like headship of the husband and church-like submission of the wife. Uh, notice that the husband, I've tried to put it in bold there. I don't know if it's clear enough for you. Is compared to the Christ and the wife underlined compared to the church in the roles they play. And just as you don't reverse the roles, 
of Christ and the church. You don't reverse the roles of husband and wife. Neither do you flatten them. So there we have the third, the purpose. Then the fourth evidence of this male headship is the naming of the woman. The man names the woman, not the other way around. When God made the first woman, he brought her to the man as the first father of the bride, if you like. He brings her to the man at the first wedding in history. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So naming is a leadership function. We named our, I don't know about you guys, we named our children Jake and Ava. We didn't wait till they were 10 and ask them what they thought they wanted to be called. (laughs) You know, you get the point. There is an authoritative leadership function that comes with naming. We even see that uh, the man is given the task of naming the animals. Fifth, Satan undermines the roles by going to the woman first. He undermines, he usurps the created leadership function of Adam and it is at the heart of the fall. And here's a really important passage for us. You'll have read it many times, but let's read it again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Serpent undermines God's order and these roles in male leadership and a female helping of that leadership. He goes to her. He shouldn't. He should have gone to Adam. Adam is given the moral teaching. He is the head of the home. But what does the serpent do? He casts Doubt upon the truthfulness and reliability of God's word. Always his task. And Eve is beginning to get sucked into it, even adding to God's word. Already she's beginning to think, oh, God is holding out on her. He's being mean. I mean, why shouldn't I take the fruit? She thinks he's unfair. She feels entitled to more. And Adam is there. He, she took her the fruit and ate and, he, and gave to her husband. He was with her. You see, when God pronounces judgment further down in verse 17, it was called Adam listened to the voice of his wife. He was passive. He was passive. Adam abdicates his responsibility to lead his wife when the deceiver usurps that order, approaches her, deceives her and not Adam. She bit, he's passive and they both fell and creation is fractured. And every time I read this passage, I want to scream out, Adam, don't be passive, man. Take responsibility. Speak up. Step in. Why aren't you leading her? Why aren't you protecting her from this assault? Why aren't you taking the hit for her, getting in between her and Satan? Even correcting her when she's getting it wrong. Cherish your wife, Adam. Get in between her and the enemy. Stand in the gap. Be watchful. Stand firm. Act like a man, Adam. Be strong and go towards the danger and do it for the love of God and for your wife. Defend the glory of God, Adam. Abuse gets the headlines, uh, and, and rightly so, but passivity is the silent killer of manhood. Passivity is the silent killer of manhood. It was that way in the beginning, and it always will be. I'll talk a little bit more about that in my plenary session later. So there you have the fifth thing is Satan's undermining of the roles. The sixth Evidence is the primary accountability. God speaks to Adam first and calls him to account first after the fall. Genesis 3, 9, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Because that's what you want to do when you're in sin and, and holiness is presented to you. You want to hide yourself away from it, cover yourself up. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Later in verse 17, 
cursed is the ground because of you. Men set the spiritual culture and tone in the home. And therefore you are held primarily responsible for what happens in your home. So men cannot be blamers. That's what Adam did. He blamed God. He blamed Eve. It doesn't matter that Adam blames her. God comes for him first. I can be pretty sure on the basis of scripture that if my wife Amanda and I have had an argument and let's say uh, she's 95% wrong, which is very rare, but let's say she's 95% wrong and she's over in one side of the house and she's sulking and I'm over in the other side of the house and I'm sulking and if Jesus was to knock at that door and Amanda was to answer, I am sure on the basis of scripture that he would say, hello Amanda, is Gavin home? I want to speak to the head of the home. And then he'll call me to account first and he'll say, what's going on? And what have you done to bring you and your wife back to the foot of the cross? When I'm repenting, he will deal with my wife. No doubt, he'll deal with her. But it's that primary accountability. Just a, an aside here for, for fathers, um, but, but, but for parents in general, um, but, but for fathers, just taking that lead um, in parenting uh, with your children, um, you get to, they get, you know, when they're little, it's hard enough. Then they get to be teenagers and sometimes they're bigger than you and they're strong. And then they got their minds are sharp and they, they can put up good arguments. And it becomes a difficult season to, to, to father and mother them. Uh, but let's just say that you've had an argument with your teenage daughter. She's 15 and uh, she's been rude and she stormed off to her, her room and she slammed the door. Dads, don't let the sun go down on the, on the anger. Go to that door. Knock on that door. Um, there's nothing that melts a teenager's heart, maybe quite like this, that dad goes, knocks on the door, says, can, can I come in? Sit down on a bed with her. Say, listen, you know. You, you were rude there, but perhaps maybe I was a little bit harsh because dad's a sinner too. And dad needs the Lord Jesus too. And what you're doing is you turn both you and her towards Jesus Christ as you use that moment of conflict as a redemptive moment uh, for your child, your teenage child. And dad taking initiative in that and not being passive is a key. And mum will be and your wife will be glad for it. And she's not having to bear that burden all of on her own. So the primary accountability. And then number seven, this is the final one, is the conflict. You see, the curse brings a distortion of previous good roles, not the introduction of new roles. Many say that male authority is a result of the fall. But this is not the drift of the text. This masculine authority is a good thing. It's divinely designed pre-fall. But at the fall, God's curse changes things. And, and to get this point clearly, we need to do a little bit of work in, in the text. And that's why it's good to have the PowerPoint, because you can see them aligned. You need to look at the languages, Genesis 3, and then in Genesis 4. Genesis 3.16, this is the curse. To the woman, he said, I, shall, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now look at Genesis 4 and verse uh, 6 and 7. Uh, I'll read the preface. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now here's the same, same language in the Hebrew. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So the meaning of desire is for you is... Uh, to conquer or control or to be against. Sin's desire for Cain is to conquer and control him. Therefore, Eve's desire in the curse after the fall for Adam in Genesis 3.16, like sin's desire for Cain, will be to conquer or control him in her sinful flesh. This is not sexual desire that's in view. Equally, Cain must rule over sin, meaning he must dominate it. So Adam, in his sin, will try and rule over Eve or dom be domineering, either, either by 
passivity and sitting back and letting her do everything because that's a that's a silent domineering you know he's just sitting back and she's just doing everything and he's just manipulating it or by physical and mental abuse because he's bigger and he's stronger and he is louder so this is a curse and the normative roles for headship and submission are distorted by the fall and here friends is the birth of the battle of the sexes And what we do then is we work against the curse. We don't affirm the curse. Like in the curse of the work of man, we don't go out and try and plant thorns and thistles to make it even more difficult. It's difficult. So we try and, or the childbirth for women. We don't say, well, that's part of the curse. She's got to like it or lump it. By God's grace, we seek to alleviate pain, especially with the the grace that we have of painkillers today. So there we have it. These are seven evidences, the naming of the human race, the order, the purpose, the naming of the woman, the usurping of the created order at the heart of the fall, the primary accountability to the man, the conflict, the curse distorts previous roles, doesn't introduce new roles. So in conclusion then, the divine design for man is to image forth God in his glory as male and female, equal but different, primary responsibility for Godward leadership falling to the man in that headship and responsibility to gladly, intelligently support this in a helpership falls to the woman. Biblical manhood and womanhood then is for all men and women because it's a creation thing. It's a creation thing. Doesn't depend on being married. You're a man or a woman in all spheres of life. This divine design uh, for male leadership in Genesis 1 to 3, I think, is compelling. The glory of God, then, is ultimately a state with manhood and womanhood. If you ignore this in the home and church and society, it will lead to cultural crisis in all of those areas, a crisis in all of those areas in which the glory of God is ultimately at stake. When you make it a God issue, you see, you take the focus away from me and my rights and feelings to him and his glory and his divine design. And that's what we want to do, I think, when we are actually discussing this with folk. They'll want to make it cultural. They'll want to make it relative. You want to take it up to a God issue um, as best you can. And then finally, just to say this, friends, you are a new man or a new woman in Christ. Christ has taken the responsibility to lead where men haven't. And Christ has submitted to his father's headship where women haven't submitted. He led the perfect life for us. And where we've blamed others, he took the blame for us and died the death we deserve. He's therefore redeemed the image of God in men and women for whom he died. Therefore, he has redeemed our manhood and womanhood. And the gospel truth is this. And this needs to be, as teachers as well, a big emphasis in our teaching is that if you're a Christian, you are now a new creation in Christ. You are a new man. You are a new woman. You're free now to be who you are. It's not a case of trying to be something you're not. It's now realizing what he's done for you and now living out in increasing amounts who you are. And that, friends, is the gospel truth that we need to make our teaching top heavy with overall. So that's the uh, end of the presentation. Can I just pray? And, and then I think we've only got a couple of minutes. I don't mind taking a couple of questions, but let me just pray. Father God, thank you for your word uh, upon which we can rest and trust. And I pray that you would give us great confidence, even this morning, in increasing measure uh, in your word about men and women, manhood and womanhood and marriage and all of these things. Uh, do more than we can imagine even in our hearts today by your spirit, according to your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.